0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Um, before I g- begin, uh, you know, there's a, there's a phrase that every husband he- hates to hear, and that is, do you notice something different about me? Uh, and uh, I have that question for you today. I am not wearing glasses. And uh, that's because I've had an eye operation just over a week ago, and uh, so I'm kind of trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, what I can focus on and what I can't. And so if I kind of stumble a little bit here, I apologize in advance. Uh, I I was going to show you like one word on a piece of page and say this is the font I'm looking at, but it's not quite that bad. Um, But uh, there's a phrase that we're hearing a lot of right now, and it's simply, stay home, right? Be safe at home, stay home, don't go out. Not because of our uh, interest in the person family, Pearson family, but beyond. When I hear that phrase, I immediately go to baseball. It's always been interesting to me that rather than calling the last base fourth base, right? It's first, second, third, fourth, because all the others are simply numbered like that. The fourth base is called home. And when you reach any of these bases, you're called safe. And of course, the ultimate is to combine the two and be safe at home. Why safe? There must have been an, a million other terms that they could have used. He's okay. He made it. On the other hand, if you don't make it, you're out. So maybe they should just say, he's in. He's in. Then there's games like hide and seek. There's so many games where we, where we get home. To get home is the, is, the, is the ultimate. It's the place of safety. It's the place of security. Even in our games, we come out ahead when we're safe at home. See, we're all, in a sense, looking for a safe place. And maybe now more than ever. We want our schools and our workplaces to be safe places. Over the last eight months, we've often viewed our province and, frankly, this area as being particularly safe places as we compared with others, but we've discovered in the last short while, that that was simply a reprieve and not a release. And it's no longer the safe place, at least it seems like, the, not the same place that we thought it was. We use the term safe place to describe the environment we would like to have at meetings where it's okay to speak your mind without fear of ridicule or uh, rebuking or retelling. We want our church to be a safe place, of course, where people can come and meet with God, a place of shelter and protection, a refuge. We pray that our children will always view our homes as safe places where they can always go. We're all looking for a safe place, and no place evokes that in our lives more than home. Safe at home conveys such security, such warmth, such comfort. We're all looking for that. We all need to feel secure, to know that there's a place of refuge for us where we can drop everything at the door, all of our worries, all of our cares, and just be home, just be safe. There is a phenomenon now, well documented, that has arisen out of events that have happened in Haiti and Mexico and Armenia and Chile and so on. Psychologists have identified an infirmity appropriately called earthquake jitters. Its symptoms are a fear of going to sleep, of instantly awaking at the sound of any movement, resulting, of course, in extreme exhaustion, emotional trauma, and insomnia. Its damage, widespread, affects every age. Now you would think that it's obvious that the root cause is simply fear of another earthquake. But that's not what it is at all. It's not the fear of an earthquake happening itself, but the fear that comes from realizing that there is no place to hide, no safe place to go in the earthquake. Let me make a little little more personal for you by asking you this question. How many of you have felt like the pandemic is squeezing in on you? Or more universally, you've had a nightmare where you had the distinct impression that you were being chased. And then maybe just as someone was making their grab for the back of your neck, you woke up and said, "Whoa! wow, I'm glad that was only a dream. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, there was a good share of running and chasing going on, only it was for real. It was no dream. In ancient times, populations were spread out and societies were not all that well organized and judicial systems were few and far between, so people kept law and order by a kind of aggressive form of tribal crime and punishment. If someone in your family or extended family lost their life at the hands of someone from another family, your family would call a meeting and you would discuss the situation and you would appoint what came to be known as a blood avenger. Their full-time job was to find whoever it was that killed your family member and chase them down until they collapsed and then kill them. Now, when you had these family meetings to decide who is going to be your blood avenger, you did not choose your rather plump Aunt Murgatroyd. Now, tried, I sincerely hope nobody who's listening is named name Murgatroyd. I chose that on purpose. So you did not choose your rather plump Aunt Murgatroyd. You chose instead your fleet-footed cousin, Usain, as in Usain Bolt. Whoever was the most powerful, fastest-running person in your family, you'd say, you are our blood avenger. Go get him. You can almost picture it, can't you? Your blood avenger tracks down the whereabouts of the person who killed someone in your family. The blood avenger waits for them to go out into the field, and then the chase is on. It's a little crude. Yeah, basic, absolutely. But it sort of kept the law and order in the day. But a problem arose. There was no provision for accidental homicides, unintentional deaths. For example, a woman is in a hurry to go to the market. She jumps onto her souped-up Mustang and takes off. A five-year-old steps out in front of her. The five-year-old is knocked down and killed in a terrible accident. The woman feels horrible. She jumps off her horse and tends to the little one, but there's nothing she can do. She didn't mean it, but what happens? The five-year-old's family gets together and appoints a blood avenger, and the chase begins. And you say, that's not fair. She didn't mean to cause the death. It was an accident. But nobody knew what to do about things like that. No one but God. In the Old Testament books of Deuteronomy and Numbers and Joshua, we see God step into this situation. He addresses this problem by establishing cities of refuge. In Joshua 20, God says, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. Six cities were established. They were spread out for easy access around the land. Check out their locations on this map. I apologize for kind of the, the, the clarity of it, but the circles represent how far the average person could run in a day. Each city was chosen because it was built on a hill, thus anyone running towards it could see it from a distance and be encouraged that safety was in sight. In fact, once a year, all the priests would gather and carefully repair the road signs and clear the roads and paths of all obstacles so that persons fleeing for their lives Lives would have no hindrances blocking their way. These places of refuge were open 24 7 to anyone Israelites, Arabs, Gentiles. There was a wideness in God's merciful provision. None who claimed refuge were turned away if they sought it. This has implications for us. Going on, if someone committed an accidental homicide, they would take off running. No time to pack, no time to bid fond farewells, and if they could make it to the city of refuge before the blood avenger tracked them down, once they got into the gates of the city of refuge, then a blood avenger could do no further harm to them. And then there was a a timeout, kind of a, a, you know, until a fair trial could happen. And then after a fair trial, if the person was guilty of flat-out murder, well, then the blood avenger was kind of welcomed in. If the person could prove it was an accident, he or she was protected. But what I want you to do is look closely at what God was providing in those days. He's still providing this. He was providing a place for everyone and anyone to run to. He was providing a place of shelter from the blood avenger. He was also providing us with a foreshadowing of what he wanted to do in each of our lives as well. And look closely at what God named these cities. He called them cities of refuge. And the point I want all of you to grasp today is that the idea for these cities of refuge, these shelters and places to run to, flows right out of the very heart of God. It is bound up in the nature and character of God to want to provide safety and refuge to people who are feeling hunted down or oppressed. It's bound up in the heart of God to want to provide safety and refuge to people who are running fast but wearing down. It is bound up in the very heart of God to want to provide safety and refuge for everyone who is hearing footsteps, everyone who needs a hiding place, a safe home. And I'll bet if I asked for a hand raise of how many of you have heard unfriendly footsteps in recent days, if I asked how many of you can relate to longing for a safe and secure place so that you can hang out and just heal up for a time, all across the internet there would be a forest of hands. And you need to know and understand and celebrate, frankly, that our God is a refuge-providing God. He delights in this role. He only asks that we avail ourselves of his refuge. Now, in order to make sure we have a handle on this, I want to look at the Bible and briefly answer four basic refuge questions. The first is really basic. What is a refuge? Maybe we can best get at this by first focusing in on the fact that there are physical refuges and spiritual refuge. What does a physical refuge feel like, look like? A fellow was down at his local police station paying a parking fine when he noticed an elderly lady just ahead of him who was trembling all over. Upon his departure, he noticed the same lady sitting on a bench in the corner reading a book, still very shaken. He went over to her and asked if everything was all right. Could he help her in any way? To which she replied, no, thank you. You see, I was home alone reading this mystery and got so scared that I came down here to finish it under police protection. Some of you will remember the story of a young couple and their baby who were traveling from California to Idaho to visit family for Christmas. They decided in their haste to take a shortcut across the northern edge of Nevada and they got lost in a blizzard. They were without food and water and heat for many days and perhaps even worse, no one knew where they were. Everyone gave up hope of ever finding them alive. But they had found a refuge. After abandoning their now buried car in the snow, they had miraculously stumbled across a cave. And they crawled in. And if you ask them what a refuge feels like, what it looks like, I'm sure they would say, well, it felt like a shelter from the storm, from the elements. It felt like a protected environment where we could sort of warm up and regroup. It felt like a safe and secure place from which we can eventually plan our best approach to be rescued. We may have died without it. Sailors know, what? Oh, you want to know what happened? They realized that they could not stay and wait there forever, so the young man walked out of the area until he encountered a snowplow on a highway. He was then able to direct the rescuers back to the cave. Both he and his wife, however, suffered severe frostbite and lost a few toes, but lived to retell their story, and best of all, their baby was fine. Sailors know what a refuge feels like. The open sea in a violent storm is just about as hostile an environment as exists on this planet. But when a sailor steers his vessel into a small, well-protected harbor, the harbor provides a kind of hiding place, a shelter from the wind and waves, a safe place from the storm. All through the Bible, God provides physical refuges, but more importantly, he used the places of refuge often to speak. A quick bio on David. He had been singled out and anointed by Samuel to be future king of Israel. He had defeated Goliath and had apprenticed under Saul, the current king. Then one by one, all these wonderful things he had been given or anticipated began to be stripped away. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, but David sure did. Let me run through them and you can look up the details yourselves later. He had been promoted from just a shepherd to a court musician to a successful warrior. But Saul became jealous and threw a a spear at him. And quite understandably, David took that as a not now, David, and David was gone. He went from being a warrior to being a fugitive. Next, he loses his wife, Saul's daughter. Saul sent his soldiers to David's home to kill him, misses, but he takes back his daughter in, in, uh, in the result. David flees to Samuel, his spiritual mentor, but no matter how far David runs, it wasn't far enough. Saul would hear, send his soldiers, and David would take off on another escape. Soon after this, Samuel dies. So David's now lost his job, his family, and now his mentor. He runs to his best friend, Jonathan. But Jonathan can't raise a sword against his own father. So David runs for his life once more, and now he has lost his best friend as well. That day, David fled from Saul and goes to Achish, king of Gath. Now, David has lost his country too. Anybody remember who else came from Gath? A real tall hulk of a guy. Goliath. David now has gone to the city, to the place of the mortal enemies, the Philistines and the home of Goliath. He tries to go in disguise, but they recognize him. So he pretends to be insane. And so David leaves Gath and escapes to the cave of Adalim. This is a man who is expecting a palace, a throne. He had wealth, power, beauty, fame, friends, security, and what he thought was a guaranteed future. I think some of us have wondered about that ourselves. And now all that supposed security is just gone, wiped out. No money, no home, no friends, no job, no advisors. He's running for his life, he's expecting a palace, and he ends up in a cave with no explanation of why and no guarantee that his life will not end this way. The cave is where you end up when all the things you've been counting on All the things you've been thinking would support you and hold you up disintegrate on you. The cave is where you end up when it's clear that the things are not working out the way that you had planned that they would. And I know that many of us feel like we are in that cave right now. It might be because of COVID or completely unrelated, but you've lost a loved one, you've lost a job, you've lost a support, you've lost the plan that was before you. Your dreams are shattered. Your relationships are on the rocks whatever the cause you're deeply disappointed by it and you are in a cave you've lost all that you were counting on and everything is crashing down when you thought you had it all together and you find yourself alone for whatever reason you're in the cave see nobody plans on living in a cave but sooner or later everybody spends some time in the cave. What's hardest, I think, about being in the cave is that you start to ask questions. Has God lost track of me? What does all this mean? What is he doing? Does he even hear me? Will I ever be anywhere but stuck in this cave? But you need to know another thing about caves. Caves are where God does some of his best work. The cave is where God molds and shapes human lives like no other place. When everything else has caved in and you find that you've all, all you've got in this world is God, you've found the most precious thing of all. That's when you discover that God and God alone is enough. God really is enough. And all those props and all that, that you thought your life was being held up by cannot support it Sometimes all, of all the places in this world, it's not the palace. It's the cave where you meet God when you discover that he is enough because God does some of his best work in caves. Now, again, let's pause for one moment. Here's David, a fugitive from his own country, his own king trying to kill him. His mentor is dead. The Philistines don't trust him. His best friend is gone. Those around him have turned on him. He has no one to turn to. And then comes, I think, one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. But David found strength in the Lord. David was strengthened. David was encouraged in the Lord. I love that. It's a wonderful thing. Of course, to be strengthened by other people. We're still privileged to be able to watch our services via live stream like you're doing right now and worship the way we're still able to do. It's great to read a book that stirs us, but I want to tell you, friends, when you're in the cave and there's nobody to turn to, and you realize perhaps for the first time that it's not a platitude. You are never truly alone. God is with you all the time, always, and he alone can and will encourage you in the midst of that. You start getting real strong when you lay hold of that. When every other resource was gone, every prop kicked out from under him, every crutch removed, David found strength in the Lord. Let's jump over to the life of a man named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God when Israel had been led into idolatry by a queen named Jezebel. She was very powerful, one of the most evil and formidable characters in all of Scripture. Her husband Ahab was the king, and their influence had seemingly led him into evil as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Underneath them, they had appointed 450 prophets that led the people of Israel away. They just wanted to get as far away from God as possible. God called in that moment Elijah to stand, and so he did. He had a kind of, let's have a contest, your God against my God. He lined up all the prophets of Baal, the God that they were worshiping, the idol on one side, and himself on the other side. Then he said to a whole nation of people, he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him but if Baal is God, follow him. I mean, how much more direct and simple can you get? He challenged them to have Baal actually take action, and then prayed that God would take action, and you can read about the whole account, but Baal is nowhere to be found, and God wins hands down. After all that happened, Ahab the king told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Jezebel sent a message to Elijah and said, This, congratulations, well done, servant of God. Oh no, may the gods deal severely with me if by tomorrow I don't have you killed. Now Elijah has to respond. What's he going to do? This brave guy who stood on on the mountain and called for God to win the contest. Listen to what the text says Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, left his servant there, and traveled the day's journey into the desert. He sat down under a solitary juniper tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, he said. He feels he can't cope and he runs. I can't handle it. I've had enough, Lord, he says. I have had enough. That's what parents say with their kids. The classic parental line actually is, I have had just about enough out of you, right? Wise children know that when a parent says that, I've had just about enough. That doesn't mean, oh, there's still room for a little bit more. Oh no, that means I'm at my limit. I've had it with you. That's what Elijah is saying here. God, I'm at the end of my rope. I've had enough. I want out. This is a classic example of what worry and fear can do to us. I can't control things. I'm not strong enough. I can't cope with this. I won't be able to figure this out. It's too overwhelming. It's enough. It's too much. So he flees. And I want to guess where he ends up a cave. That's where Elijah experiences a mighty wind and an earthquake and a fire, and I love the phrasing through all of that about how God wasn't in that, and then this came, and God wasn't in that, and this came, and God wasn't in that, and then he hears this gentle whisper, this still, small voice, the voice of God, and he learns that God is with him in the cave but he doesn't just learn that. God doesn't do what Elijah wanted him to do, or frankly, what most of us generally want. God does not say to him, you know, Elijah, you're right. You can't handle this. Just hold up here in the cave, and I'll go take care of all of that for you. I'll take care of Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel. I'll remove all the things that are bothering you right now. Then when it's safe, When everything's perfect and all your problems are solved, I'll come and I'll get you, Elijah, and you can go back to normal. You can go back to your normal life. We think it would be nice if God would do that, but hear this today, people. God rarely does that. Here are God's first words to Elijah. I love this line too. Elijah, you must go back the way you came. You'll have to go back down the mountain, Elijah, and you'll have to face the same set of problems that you ran away from. They they haven't changed. They're all still there. Jezebel is still waiting for you. She's just as difficult as ever. Her personality has not improved one bit while you've been gone. She hasn't been through an anger management course or anything. The, her idea of conflict resolution is to resolutely eliminate the one in conflict with her. You'll have to go and face her. You have to go Back the way you came. What God says to Elijah in this story is generally what God says to us, to you and I. My plan for you, God says, is not that you run away from what you fear. It's not that you'll be airlifted out of the crisis that you're in somehow. My plan for you is that you shall overcome it with me, that you act in faith, with me. When you act in faith, when you take one step of faith towards me and deal with that which you're most afraid of, well, when that happens, your faith will get very strong. You will be filled with tremendous confidence, confidence that together you and I, God speaking, you and I can handle anything. You'll start to walk through life like that, and one thing after another that used to produce enormous fear in you won't after a while. Elijah goes back down the mountain. He goes back the way he came. The point is, don't discount the safe place that God provides for you. It might feel like you're stuck in a cave, but it might just be where God wants you to be in these moments, to listen for his still small voice, to call out to him in your isolation, and find in him all that you need, all the strength that you need. But let's get to the heart of the matter here. There's much more to this idea of refuge than a physical place of safety. There is also a spiritual place of safety that is not confined to our surroundings at all. There is a spiritual refuge, and God wants us to know it, and God wants us to find it. So where is this refuge? Well, one of the most beautiful pictures of what a refuge is in a spiritual sense is found in Psalm 91. It begins... You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. God says that he is our refuge and our fortress. Okay, so what does that look like? In a spiritual sense, friends, it feels like a hiding place. It feels like a shelter from the harsh realities of those oppressing or pursuing us. It feels like a protected environment where we can find rest and peace. It feels secure and safe. If you're like me in these times, we face, there were two words that stood out above all the rest in this passage of Scripture as I read it. Two words that kind of just hit home, right? Pestilence and plague. All through history, from biblical times to now, there have been diseases which have been, having, been around and had negative effects on the population. Epidemics and pandemics will come and go, honestly, until Christ returns. There will be diseases which will disrupt daily life and may lead to the destruction of many lives. It, the Bible tells us we are living in a time of tribulation. We're living in a time of trouble. Don't be surprised. What, however, determines your peace and your eternal destination is the faith that you live out before the Lord of heaven and earth, your personal relationship with Jesus and your sensitivity to his spirit working within you. Finding peace amidst pestilence begins by understanding that God is personally interested in you. Please hear me when I say that God is personally interested in you. God is the one to look to when living through an epidemic or a pandemic. He rules over all. He is the only true God who is above all having the power to control and guide the government in all decisions needing to be made as well as implementing the plans which we have set in, which have been set in place. He is all sufficient. He is able to provide everything needed to come up with a treatment to strengthen caregivers and those who are afflicted. He is able to give wisdom to the medical field, the businesses affected, to all whose lives have been disrupted or displaced. He is the answer. He promises wisdom to all who ask. He can prepare his church to minister to all who have needs while resting on his promises. We're living that out. Our text says, he will shelter you with his wings. Now, if you have a, a bit of a farm background or have ever raised chickens, you, you perhaps can see this picture. Uh, perhaps you've seen this. Uh, little chicks hop around chirping, doing chick stuff and then all of a sudden the chicks and the mother hen become aware that there is a predator in the vicinity. The mother lifts her wings, and within seconds all the baby chicks just come running from all over the place and disappear under the wing, and they hide there, and they're sheltered there, and the chicks are saying in the blackness under the wings, beep, 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 my heart, my heart, did you see the teeth of that fox? Now, eventually, they have to go and crawl out of there. Eventually, they have to go back the way they came. Eventually, they have to face the real world. But for a time, there is nothing quite like being sheltered under those wings. Friends, it's the heart of God to offer to each one of us that kind of hiding place under his wings. Just like when God provided cities of refuge for those who are running from blood avengers, today God delights in spreading his protective wings and enfolding his frightened, weary, beaten down, worn out children under his wings. Hide here. Get out of danger. Get out of the elements. Recuperate. Rest. Find renewed strength. And then when the time is right, when strength has been renewed, and when souls have been restored, then and only then, he gently lifts his wings, and his children venture back out into the world, stronger and more secure. Where is our real refuge? Over and over again, the psalmist make it clear, our real refuge is in God and God alone. Let's move on to the next question, which may be somewhat rhetorical. Who needs a refuge anyway? Cities of refuge didn't mean much to the average person in the Old Testament, but to the housewife who accidentally killed the five-year-old on the way to the store and had the blood avenger chasing her hot on her heels, cities of refuge were the most important places on the planet. Just imagine this innocent woman running for her life. She's wearing down, looking over her shoulder. The blood avenger is gaining. She hears footsteps. She hears breathing. She feels a swipe at the back of her neck, and when she bursts through the gates... You can bet she collapses in the street and cries out, Oh, yay, God, thank you for providing a place of rest and security. I'd be dead apart from you creating the shelter. Who needs a refuge? You know who you are if you've heard footsteps, if you felt the pressure, if you felt like you were stuck in a cave, if you ever have said, I've had enough. Psalm 91 says very clearly, I will rescue, I will protect, I will answer, I will be with you in trouble, I will deliver you, honor you, save you. All throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms, God extends his arms to his people who are hearing footsteps. Oppressed people need a safe place, a refuge. Weary people need a safe place. Fearful people need a safe place. Grieving people also need a refuge. Worried people, disappointed people, lonely people, heartbroken people, we all need a refuge. Who needs a refuge? All of us do. All of us need a safe place. We also need protection from something, frankly, even more dangerous. The Bible says that as a result of Satan's work in our hearts and our own evil self-will and the choices we make, that we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's expectation for us. We've all disobeyed God. It also says that there is only one punishment for those sins, death. The blood avenger is after us. As soon as we put one toe across the line of morality, as soon as we lie or steal or lose our temper, we are being pursued by the blood avenger. And should we be found outside the place of safety? Well, destruction is inevitable. What about you this morning? If you haven't fled to Christ for safety, then the avenger of blood is after you. You are out in the open fields of life. You are away from the place of refuge. You're being pursued by the one who wants to devour you. And each day you live, your pursuer is getting closer and closer. And who knows one day soon, but that your race will be over and you never made it to the place of refuge. Friends, if you're searching and you're having a hard time believing that God is real and that what we are talking about this morning can happen, I can tell you that I have felt the wings of God extend over me time and time again. I have heard and I know from talking with many of you who are watching right now that you have heard and felt his invitation as well, his gentle invitation as he whispers. Let me hide you. Let me shelter you from the storm. Let me hide you from angry and cold-hearted, unfaithful people. Let me hide you from those devious business people. Let me hide you from frightening medical reports. Let me hide you from overwhelming financial needs. Let me hide you from the virus that chases you. Let me shelter you from people who don't understand and say hurtful things to you. Let me take the punishment meant for you so that the blood avenger is off your case for good. Let me offer you forgiveness and a conscience at peace and at rest in your soul. You can almost hear God saying, Let me tuck you under my wings. Come on in. God's overwhelming, irrational love for us makes it a joy for him to offer protection. He longs to protect us, which leads me to the last question How do we ac- access then this refuge that God provides? How do we get into this safe heaven? Friends, though first move is yours. And it's a big one. It's a hard one. It goes against the grain of every self-efficient, self-kind of controlling bone in your body. It's the move from perceived independence to dependence on God. For actually, we all depend on something or someone. We should depend on God. Psalm 91 begins with the clue. Whoever Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. To dwell means to sit, to inhabit, to endure, to stay, to persevere. So the question is today, where are you dwelling? Where is your home? We are not to make work or our ministries or our families or our hobbies our dwelling place. We can find some physical refuge, of course, in our homes, but there too, this is not the spiritual refuge that we all crave for. Our souls long for it deep inside, the kind of refuge that will see us through each and every day and all the troubles therein. Dwelling with the Lord enables us to enjoy God as our refuge and as our fortress. I love the word picture that gives us the forces around us, the fears, the stress, the viruses coming against the wall of the fortress and being turned away, just battering against the walls that will not be moved, that will not be shaken and just falling away. He's our fortress. The psalmist, through this Psalm 91, builds up a kind of anticipation. What what you're describing is the kind of refuge I need. Psalmist, I need it. Come on, come on. How do I access the refuge that God provides? And at the very end, we have our answer and God's promise all rolled up into this one glorious statement. God says, when they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. What is the first step of accessing the refuge that God provides? Calling out. It's just simply calling out to God. It's admitting that something or someone is threatening us, pressing in, wearing us out, and that unless we find this place of refuge, unless we find the hiding place, unless we crawl under His wings of love, we're done. We're in need, we're out of gas. There's nowhere to turn, it's too much, it's over. And I've been there, and many of you have too. And you just need to call out because there's nothing else you can do. Everything else has been stripped away, right? And the good news is you don't have to drive to a monastery to access God's refuge. You don't have to call a pastor even. You don't have to wait until one of our services happens. You can do it in the front seat of your car. Your office, your home, your construction trailer, in an airplane, in a classroom, wherever you are listening to this right now, you can have access to the refuge of God anytime, anywhere. But you've got to acknowledge your need. You have to move from that perceived self-sufficiency to dependence on God. You have to realize that on your own, without a place of refuge, the Avengers will catch up to you and do you in. In a corner marketplace in Rotterdam, Holland, stands an old house known as the House of a Thousand Horrors. During the 16th century, the Dutch rose up against their cruel king, King Philip II of Spain, who responded by sending a great army to quell the rebellion. Rotterdam held out for a time, but eventually surrendered. From house to house, the victors went, searching out citizens and killing them in their houses. A group of men and women and children had taken refuge in this corner house when they heard the soldiers approaching. A thousand terrors gripped their hearts, and all was lost when a young man had an idea. He quickly seized a goat, killed it, and swept the blood under the doorway and out to the street. The soldiers reached the house, began to batter the door down when one of them noticed the blood seeping out from under the door and he said, let's go. The work has already been done here and the people escaped. You have to realize today that on your own, without a place of refuge, the Avengers will catch up to you and do you in. You've got to give that up. You've got to run towards the safe place, the city of refuge, the God of refuge, the safe haven that Jesus built by taking your punishment upon himself. See, the work had already been done. His blood running down the cross and under the door grants you the refuge that you so desperately are looking for. You've got to call out, oh God, it's time that I turn to you. Are some of you ready? The second step is a stretch too. It's the move from silence to spilling it out to God. It says in our passage here, call upon me. You will never experience this safe place that God would love for you to experience unless you pour out and tell him all of what it is that assails you. And God honors the pouring out. He honors the soul-wrenching words that you utter in your pain when you finally decide to trust him and tell him how bad it really feels and how close to the edge you are or how close you think the end is. See, God honors that. He promises to answer. The gates open, the wings extend, and when you get it all out, you will begin to have an awareness that you're covered you will begin to see that the footsteps are softer. The opposition feels less intense. The burden is lighter. There's a ray of hope shining through. And in that moment, you will know that God is real and that his love for you is deep. And somehow, some way, you're going to get through whatever it is that you're going through and you will... Breathe a sigh of relief, and you will rest in that safe place, and you will truly know God as your refuge and your fortress. You will not fear like most people in this world do in pandemics. The present pestilence does not cause you to fear. Instead, you're on your knees praying for direction, for open doors of opportunity to minister to those in need, and most of all, you pray. You pray for his will to be done in your life, in your family, in your church, in your community, in your country, and around the world, resting each day in God's goodness and love. Here's one last thought. The Bible teaches us that there is coming a final and eternal city of refuge, a safe home that awaits all of us who are his children. In this city, this safe haven, this safe heaven The Bible says you will never hear another footstep chasing you down. There will be no more threats. There will be no more opposition. There will be no more sickness. There will be no oppression of any kind. The heartbreak and the loneliness and the hurt and the misunderstandings and the damage that has been done to you in this life will not be allowed to get anywhere near you for all eternity. It's the final and ultimate city of refuge. And that final city That ultimate safe place is open to any and all who would choose to enter it through the person of Jesus Christ. And I just want to ask you to consider entering in. Enter into the safe place. Enter into the city of refuge. Enter into God and get under his wings if you need a hiding place. And enter into his eternal city of refuge if you want to be safe at home, secure, forever. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com